This is Africa Digest. Good afternoon and welcome to Africa Digest. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. Broadcasting to you from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and I am in studio with uh, Onelens Insi as well as Nosikhezuma. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Electoral authorities in Malawi ready to vote, uh, count votes rather, as voting closes at 6 p.m. in many polling centers with no major challenges reported. Cameroon humanitarian and health workers reacting favorably to calls of a COVID-19 ceasefire in the conflict-prone English-speaking regions. And Libya's High Council of State has warned the Egyptian army against a high-stakes military gamble in the conflict-ridden country. Right now, though, it's time for us to cross on over to the news desk. Here is Onelin Sinsi with your latest news bulletin. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samara. South Africa will begin clinical trials of a COVID-19 vaccine on Wednesday. The research and development is the first for the continent and is led by the Medical Research Council and Wurz University. 2,000 people will form part of the country's vaccine trial. The first group is 50 people who are HIV negative who will be vaccinated this next week. Later this month, the process will then add 1,900 at a different and stronger dosage of the vaccine. Principal of the vaccine study, Shabi Modi, says the testing groups will be monitored for 12 months. In this particular group, at this stage, we're planning on giving a single dose of vaccine. But depending on the data that comes from the Oxford study, where two-dose schedule is currently being evaluated, we might or might not decide to actually include a second dose of the vaccine. This particular group is probably the most important group because it gives us a greater window of insight in terms of the safety of the vaccine, as well as whether this vaccine actually protects against COVID-19. So in this particular group, we're evaluating for vaccine efficacy. Mardi says the clinical trials will take place at three locations in the Harting province. The test groups will be people aged between 18 and 65 years old. That provide informed consent and are able to show an understanding in terms of the study through an assessment before they actually enroll. Uh, they need to be able to comply with all study requirements. They need to test HIV negative for group one and group two. And if they're females, they need to be on contraception. In terms of the exclusion criteria, we're basically excluding people that are pregnant or planning on becoming pregnant that are lactating at this point in time, individuals with a history of chronic respiratory or cardiovascular disease people that are very obese, as well as people that might have had a respiratory illness in the past month. Voting is taking place in Malawi in a rerun of the presidential elections. This is five months after the results of last year's disputed vote was unexpectedly annulled. 
President Peter Mutarika had originally been declared a re-elected by a margin of just half a percent. But evidence of vote tampering, including correction fluid on telesheets, led to a judge's scraping of the results of what had become dubbed the TPEX election. The incumbent is facing an opposition coalition lead by Lazarus Chakwere. Costing his vote, Chakwere said he has confidence that the elections will be fair. I believe that uh, Malawians' quest for justice is actually being answered today, and I believe their rights will be respected. I have confidence in the Electoral Commission to do what is right. South Africa's former president, Jacob Zuma, supporters have welcomed the Peter Maritzburg High Court in the KwaZulu-Natal province ruling that the trial date for his arms deal case be heard in September. The group calling itself Harting RET President Zuma Support gathered at the Boysen's Hotel south of Johannesburg. The group's coordinator, Carl Niehaus, says today's court proceedings were another example of Zuma's vilification. We have to ask ourselves, is the state really serious in this matter? Or are we just continuing with the usual political game that has been played against President Zuma? What you saw today during the court proceedings was that that totally unacceptable warrant of arrest was now withdrawn. It was never necessary to institute that warrant of arrest. Meanwhile, Zuma's advocate Moses Sikakane has accused the state of doing an egg dance because it has already decided that they only want to go to trial next year. The case has been adjourned to the 8th of September to give the state an opportunity to furnish Zuma and Tali's legal teams with further particulars as requested. Sikakane urged the state previously blamed Zuma's legal team for delays and is now putting the COVID-19 pandemic forward as another reason for a further postponement. Earlier, Judge Daya Pile had cancelled a warrant for Zuma's arrest that was issued when he failed to appear in court on the 4th of February. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Starting off in Malawi, where electoral authorities say all is set for vote counting to start since voting closes at 6 p.m. in many polling centers, with no major challenges reported. This comes after 6.8 million Malawians cast their ballots in fresh presidential elections. These fresh presidential polls have come about after the opposition challenged the uh, May 2019 results in courts. The courts, that is the constitutional and supreme after hearing legal argument, nullified the results and ordered fresh polls within 150 days. As George Mhango reports, electoral observer mission teams did not come because of travel restrictions due to COVID-19. Malawians that registered to vote have done so after both the Constitutional Court and Supreme Court of Appeal found that the May 21, 2019 elections had serious irregularities. Today was such a day that was endorsed legally for Malawians to vote so that within 150 days from February 3, 2020, the President is sworn in and starts discharging duties. Visits to different polling stations proved 
that the turnout was unexpected than last year. Make chairperson Chifundo Gajale said everything is under control. Mission wishes to appeal to the nation to continue to maintain peace and calm. The commission is managing everything to ensure that all Malawians who registered as voters have can be able to cast their votes. We have deployed security personnel across the whole country and we would like to remind everyone that any breaches of security will be met with a sanction of the law. And would also like to urge all citizens and people of goodwill to refrain from taking the law into their own hands in the event that they discover anything that is untoward or inappropriate or indeed what they suspect to be illegal. Let us use the law enforcement agencies on the ground to seek to enforce the law because if we seek to take matters into our own hands, everything can degenerate into any kind of chaos and therefore undermine the credibility of the whole process. This is a landmark fresh presidential poll considering that it's first of its kind to happen in Malawi and Sadiq as a whole. The system that is going to be used to determine the winner is that of 50 plus 1 as opposed to the previous first past the post. In the poll, President Peter Mutarika is facing Lazarus Chakwera and Peter Kuwani. During the time of voting, Mutarika condemned some violent acts that were reported. We saw in Garcia, Kabudua, um, Doa and also Salima. This is necessary. We appointed the commission uh, that our monitors were chased away, some were beaten. A secretary general had run through the forest and high, which is Jeffrey, until they came to rescue her. It's very, very sad uh, that uh, this is happening. Um, I think we need to give the people the will of the people. There's obviously people who are afraid of the will of the people that are engaged in this barbaric. Um, um, By 6 a.m., 90% of the polling stations were open. The commission later today, during a press conference, hinted that results are expected after eight days. The Mekchia person Kachale again said politicians need not to pressurize the commission on results. At the end of the polls, and when all the results have been presented to the National Tally Center, the commission has up to eight days to announce results of the elections from the 23rd of June 2020. We would like to appeal to the public and to all stakeholders to refrain from placing any kind of pressure on the commission to release the results before the expiry of the time when the commission will be processing all the complaints, which is the direction the courts have given the commission at this stage. At this stage, as the commission would like to remind members of the public that even in the course of an election event, the ordinary laws of the country are still in operation. Anybody involved in any kind of criminal activity will be accordingly answerable to the law. Allow us at this point, therefore, to appeal to all members of the public to exercise the highest form of restraint where there are any incidents that require the intervention of law enforcement. Mob justice is injustice and will only create chaos and confusion. Let us take advantage of the presence of all the security personnel that have been deployed across the country in the event that we suspect anybody of breaking the law. Taking matters into our own hands will not move our democracy forward. 
Your vote is your right as a Malawan citizen. Exercise it diligently. As polling stations closed, vote counting began in other centers. It is the expectation of every voter that results will be made public soon. George Mhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Cameroon humanitarian and health workers have been reacting favorably to the call by Nobel Peace Prize laureates and former heads of state on government troops and anglophone separatists to declare a COVID-19 ceasefire in the conflict-prone English-speaking regions. Humanitarian staff members say it comes at a time when at least a thousand health and aid workers have escaped from the crisis-prone uh, crisis-prone zone, compromising the future of tens of thousands of patients and at least two million people in need of urgent humanitarian assistance. Moki Kinzeka reports that although health and aid workers are expressing satisfaction, the government is yet to comment. Signatories to the Global Campaign for Peace and Justice in Cameroon include Professor Mohamed Yunus, 2006 Nobel Peace Prize winner, Honorable Jose Ramos Horta, Nobel Peace Prize 1996, the Honorable F.W. de Klerk, Nobel Peace Prize 1993, and former president of the Republic of South Africa, among 18 other international notables. They say they challenged the government and military of Cameroon to call a ceasefire in the two Anglophone regions and that the government of Cameroon holds a special responsibility to protect its citizens under international law. Similarly, they challenge all non-state armed groups in the two Anglophone regions to call a ceasefire to protect citizens from COVID-19 and other catastrophic health threats and also challenge the United Nations Security Council and the UN Secretary General, the African Union and African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the Commonwealth and La Francophonie to use all instruments of power at their disposal to urge Cameroon to call a COVID-19 ceasefire and ensure that Cameroon's Anglophone conflict is on the agenda of the forthcoming UN Security Council meeting. Professor T. Pius, director of the Cameroon Baptist Convention Church's Health Services, says his wish is that the sick and dying should be assisted promptly and for that to be possible, abuses on medical staff members that is rampant should be immediately stopped. On the 29th of May, seven of our healthcare workers were abducted and they remained in the bushes for three days. Nobody knew where they were. And on the 4th of June, again, three others were taken to the bush and uh, they were finally released in the night. But up to today that we are talking, the car is not found. And again, as we talk, Four of our workers that went into the field yesterday to do HIV and AIDS and uh, COVID-19 sensitization have also been abducted and they are still alive. And Professor T adds that as he speaks, medical staff do not have access to communities. The COVID-19 has even placed a, a more serious problem now on the population because you need to identify these cases quickly, isolate them and treat those that you can treat and why uh, preventing more infections in the community. We are unable to reach out to do this. Workers are afraid when they see all these arms by the government or by the non-government armed uh, groups. Tanyi Christian Eselekwe, official of the International Humanitarian Group Lupmeth Cameroon, says his services were hampered this year 
when armed groups kidnapped his staff members and stole vehicles transporting humanitarian supplies. Our plea is that um, there is the need for ceasefire to allow those who are affected uh, by the crisis to receive um, the needed assistance. As humanitarian organizations, we work strictly based on the humanitarian principles and the international humanitarian law. We do not take sides and we uh, make sure that all our operations are geared towards uh, relieving the suffering of those affected by this crisis. Last month, Human Rights Watch researcher for Central Africa, Ilaria Alagrozi, also raised an alarm on the attacks on humanitarian staff. She blames both the military and separatist fighters. Since the crisis started four years ago, the military and separatists have always blamed each other for the atrocities. The spokesperson for the government of Cameroon, René Emmanuel Sadi, after he was contacted, said the government will react at the appropriate moment. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Tune in to Vision 2030 with Ona and Tabila Masugu, the new show revolving around the Sustainable Development Goals and Agenda 2030. Every Tuesday, 10 to 11 a.m. Central African Time. Connect with us on all social media platforms at Channel Africa One, hashtag Vision 2030. Libya's High Council of State has warned the Egyptian army against a high-stakes military gamble in the conflict-ridden country. This comes after Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi warned that his country could intervene in Libya if regional rival Turkey and its allied forces followed uh, through on threats to forcibly seize the strategic city of Sirta. The UN recognizes the government of national accord, a GNA headed by Fayez al-Sarraj, as the country's legitimate authority as Tripoli battles the militias of eastern-based commander Khalifa Haftar. Libya has been in turmoil since 2011 when a Western-backed civil war toppled longtime leader Muammar Gaddafi, who was later killed. For more on the latest developments, Channel Africa's Kumbera Munjalele spoke to Dr. Mohamed Shtetao, uh, an expert on North African politics based in Rabat in Morocco. Yes, I think the situation is already very bad and it's uh, going to get even bad uh, after a while because now that the Egyptians are saying that they might intervene directly, I think it's going to be a war between the different proxies. And I see this war mainly for the moment on one side between Egypt and on the other side with uh, Turkey and maybe even the, the Russia and the United Arab Emirates will be involved in this dirty war in Libya. I think everyone is interested in Libya, and they are not allowing the Libyans themselves to decide of their future, because they all have a stake uh, economic, political in this country that is fragmented for the moment and that has gone wild in the sense that it has become tribal uh, and where everyone is trying to have his own interest into uh, this uh, predicament and into this situation. 
So I think the next few days, things are going to be really bad. Now, Libya's high council of state came out to blast al-Sisi's call for training and arming Libyan tribesmen as an attempt to fuel sedition and turn Libyans against each other, saying Libya is an independent and sovereign state. Is it fair to blame Aguila Saleh, the Speaker of Eastern Libya-based parliament for Sisi's statements as the council has done? Well, I think uh, we, can, uh, we can blame both uh, the external forces and the internal forces. When I say internal forces, I, I say the Libyan themselves. Sure. On the one hand, there is Haftar who was trying to, to burn down the whole of Libya, to conquer it. And um, uh, he did really very bad things uh, coming from the east. And on the other hand, uh, the government, which is... Uh, Uh, recognized by the United Nations is not doing enough to uh, call for a national unity, national union, and to try to unite all the Libyans, all the different factions uh, into one government uh, that will try to solve the problems and uh, find uh, solutions to uh, all the uh, predicaments that Libya is going through for the moment. Now, you say that the situation is likely to worsen uh, given the heightened tensions, but more concerning, Prof, is the flagrant uh, violations of the arms embargo by both sides. Why is the United Nations peace process not effective? Well, I think the United Nations uh, has tried and uh, it has uh, organized meetings in Morocco, in Sherat in Morocco. It has organized meetings other places uh, and it has a government that is recognized by the international community. But the, inter- the, the government recognized by the international community is in many ways weak and uh, its weakness have, has brought in uh, Turkey and has brought in also other countries like uh, United Arab Emirates, like Egypt, like Russia. And uh, it has made out of the country a quagmire. Uh, so I think the uh, United Nations uh, has to help again and come in, uh, but also Europe and um, uh, the African Union and the United States But I think the United States and Europe are not interested anymore in the Libyan problem because we don't see any economic interest anymore in Libya. Uh, The oil has gone down and um, so Libya does not represent a very important problem for the Europeans. The only problem that probably is uh, for the Europeans and for the United States is uh, migration because all of the uh, migrants from Africa, from African countries, are going through Libya to go to Italy. So it represents a problem for Italy. But I think the United Nations has to uh, change its attitude. It has to change its approach uh, to Libya because the first approach of the national government, unity government, didn't work. Now it has to look at a different way 
uh, maybe uh, come uh, with an idea of more consensus, bring everybody uh, into uh, the discussion, bring everybody and make them talk about solutions rather than problems. Now, you are talking about the role of the African Union in this crisis. Of course, we know that the military intervention threats made by Egypt come on the eve of a virtual meeting of Arab League foreign ministers on Libya to be held sometimes this week. This is the meeting requested by Egyptian authorities with Cairo seeking Arab support for its peace plan in Libya. What can can we expect from this meeting, Prof? No, I don't think this meeting, honestly, will bring anything new. Uh, maybe the Arab countries will throw their support behind Egypt. And if they do, this is a big mistake because it means Egypt will take over and with its uh, country, the countries that are on its side, take over Libya. And I don't think that's a good thing to happen. So I don't expect the Arab Union, the Arabs to meet and to do something about the Libyan. They had ample time in the past to do something. They did nothing. And that's Dr. Mohamed Shatao, an expert on North African politics on the line from Rabat in Morocco, talking to Kumbelo Mujalele. Now, while there has been a rise in support for the principle of people seeking refuge, the coronavirus outbreak is changing attitudes, with some people thinking borders must be closed closed entirely. This is according to a new global Ipsos study conducted across 26 countries. The online survey was conducted to commemorate World Refugee Day this past Saturday. For more on the research findings, we are now joined on the line by Director at Ipsos South Africa, Mari Harris. Mari, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon, Samura, and thanks for having me. Now, Mari, could you tell us uh, more about the hardening of attitudes towards refugees right now based on the study? Well, on the, the one side, it is, it's actually very interesting. If we speak about the principle that people should leave or should be able to leave a country where um, it's ravaged by war and persecution, people are actually quite accepting of that. And um, over the world, 72% say that uh, people should be allowed to flee from a country and they should even be allowed to have refuge in their own countries. In South Africa, it is three quarters of South African society who agree with the principle. But if we look at the whole issue of coronavirus, then people feel much stronger about it. And only half then say that the country should be um, now allow people to come in. And um, in South Africa, that is um, 57% to say people should be not be coming into the country right now. Um, they feel that the coronavirus makes it too dangerous and they feel that there should be more controls at the moment. And even all over the world, they say, uh, well, 49% half say that borders should be closed during this period. But as we know, coronavirus really doesn't make any difference whether you're a refugee or not. If you are going to get the virus, you're going to get the virus. So it is just... Um, these two things that are almost opposite each other on the one side. In principle, people are accepting of the fact of refugees and the fact that they need a different place to live. Uh, But looking at the reality of coronavirus, they're not so sure about that. 
Now, the study has, however, found that a majority of people still support the rights of people to seek refuge across all countries. Could you explain that a bit more? Yes, um, as I just said now, um, you know, people, there's definitely majority support of the right of people to seek refuge. And um, that is especially so in places like Sweden, um, where 81% say that um, they support this right, the Netherlands, where 80% say they support this right, and Spain, where 79% say they support this right. On the other side of the scale, we have countries like South Korea, Hungary and Malaysia not supporting the right of of, um, people to seek refuge elsewhere. And what would you say was probably the most surprising thing about the study? One thing that surprised me was the whole um, issue about whether people think that refugees um, are uh, integrating into the new country successfully. And um, that is one of the aspects that people became a lot more positive about in the last year. Um, last year, 2019, only 38% of people all over the world said that refugees are able to successfully integrate. Now it's 45%, and now it's still less than half. But there's a big change in how people feel about this integration of uh, refugees into the new society that they have chosen. And it is especially people in Saudi Arabia and India and Argentina that say that people, you know, that they are far more positive about the integration of people that come from elsewhere into their own societies. I think it has a lot to do with culture and those sorts of things because we see, for instance, a a country like Peru that receives a lot of refugees from Venezuela say it's not so easy to integrate people in your society. So there's there's differences in the world about our integration, but there's definitely a change or, let's say, a different wind is blowing about the integration of refugees into the society that they have chosen or that they in the end find refuge in. And Mari, just very quickly, let's talk about South Africa in particular. It appears to be uh, actually more doubtful about the authenticity of refugees coming to the country. What's behind this scepticism? I think um, South Africans, or well, almost 70% of South Africans are saying they are not so sure that all people coming into this country are that, that are asylum seekers or declare themselves as refugees are really refugees. They say a lot of people come to the country because they are rather economic migrants. We also get this in other countries, um, but it's particularly strong in in South Africa. We also see the same thing in Malaysia. As I told you before, that's a country where people are not that um, accepting of refugees. It's strong in India, in Russia, and in Turkey, and in South Africa and Italy. They say that um, there's a big difference between fleeing for your life, as a lot of refugees do, and being an economic migrant. All right, Mari, thank you very much for joining us. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. And that's that's Mari Harris, director at Ipsos South Africa. The time is now 17.30 Central African time. Here's Onelin Sinsi with your latest news headlines. SABC News. Independent 
and impartial. From an African perspective. Ethiopia insists on filling Africa's most powerful hydroelectric dam even without a deal with Sudan and Egypt. South Africa will begin clinical trials on a COVID-19 vaccine on Wednesday and the men's world number one tennis player has tested positive for the coronavirus. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelintzintzi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. The COVID-19 pandemic has presented entrepreneurs with an opportunity to take center stage in solving the economic troubles through innovation. Danny Tong, chief executive officer of Invest Tong, doesn't, uh, doesn't subscribe to the notion that someone can entirely dictate a business's destiny. He believes the entrepreneurship journey is shaped by the economic landscape, where one has to continuously scan the environment in search of opportunities that exist in the market, conduct market and product research and development in order to create innovative products and services that are comparable to none and improves efficiency and economic growth. Tong explains. This pandemic, uh, obviously, as we would know, that it has presented a huge challenge which affects all parties that you've mentioned, right? And and entrepreneurs are meant to, to, to really be, be the ones that share some light and hope um, in, the, in that area. By they, them, they themselves, they, they also extremely challenged. Um, but I believe it's really to, by, by virtue of being able to adapt to the current norm, and finding ways and, 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 and really creating new opportunities within the current crisis will allow and, 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 and be some sort of assistance to the cap of, 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 of unemployment. As, as it stands, um, I mean, you have, you have companies that, that are shutting down, you, and we're talking about big corporates, you know, and you have, you have the economy that is shrinking, um, but we expected as entrepreneurs to, to regardless be remain, you know, sustainable and, and, and perhaps find ways of growing within the mess. But the lovely thing is there are opportunities that, that have emanated, uh, through this crisis nonetheless. Now, in terms of the solutions, what can entrepreneurs do during this uh, period or going forward? Innovation. It's, it's definitely innovation. So, so adapting to the current norm, it's finding ways that allow you to do what you've been doing, but doing it, um, within, within what COVID has presented as, as an opportunity, which now we're talking, we're talking digitization, we're talking for IR. So the rest of these services that we offer, indeed within the provisional services, uh, um, um, the actual, let's, let's take a few sectors perhaps. Let's say manufacturing, for example. Right. Um, there has been talks for the longest time uh, that industries that, such as those have are able to um, uh, to digitize their their systems, you know, their processes and, and 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 so forth. That presents an opportunity for that to be scaled and and quite rapidly. And we've seen that it's possible based on what has happened. You have a lot of companies that now have created processes and and and, and systems that allow them to carry on 
through this time. So the opportunity sits there to say, as a business, how do we press a reset button and improve our efficiency without having to necessarily um, rely on human interaction, on, on being in one space at the same time? Um, it's all these opportunities that once you start really, really interrogating your business and your processes, you find that there are a lot of loopholes that you can improve for your benefit of the business, but as well create other markets that allow you to grow and grow at the rapid rate. Now, in terms of education, how important is education during this particular time? Do you think that can help you to get employed or to create employment, or do you need more? We're caught up with, with the formal structures of, of, of education. So in education, we'll be talking, about, do I need to get a degree or a particular degree? Do I need to go? No. What is needed now is for everybody else to equip themselves with what seems to be the, 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 the norm of how business is going to be moving forward. Put in those lenses and say, what does this apply and what does this impact mean to business for the next five years, for the next 10 years? And what sort of skills do I need to equip myself to actually be sure that I'm competitive and I remain uh, relevant in that new path of business? And and that has nothing to do with the formal education system. That is about re- reading on, on matters that are in that interest you and actually that are going to equip the particular skill that you may want to be wanting to harness. And finally, with uh, the companies struggling and entrepreneurs also being touched by the COVID-19, the negative impacts of the COVID-19, in the meantime, is there a possibility of them coming out of this uh, situation? There is a huge opportunity. If there's anything that COVID presented uh, now, it's for small to medium-sized companies to also get an opportunity to become or to become players within the mainstream economy. It's that opportunity, it's that opportunity that really is on the table right now. So, uh, can companies come out of this? Certainly. Are there opportunities um, for them to actually not only survive, sustain, and grow? Definitely, without a doubt. And, and I believe that it's, it's those businesses that are agile and those businesses that are very persistent and, and, and that, that, that really have a purpose, you know, that the entrepreneurs running those organizations are real entrepreneurs that understands and that, that any uh, challenge that presents itself has a solution that will give that, that, that company a, a, a platform to grow and become one of the best companies. I mean, if, if you look at the, 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 the history of the economy, best companies were, uh, you know, emanated from a crisis mode. You know, we in that space of, 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 of crisis, there lies an opportunity for these companies that will apply or develop new solutions within this current norm that will become the greatest companies of, of all time. And that's uh, Danny Tong, Chief Executive Officer at Investong, on the line to Tutongo Beni. Bridge Taxi Finance, a taxi finance company, is providing financial relief to South Africa's taxi drivers and owners in the form of a 175 million rand cash injection, which is 10 million US dollars directly into their clients' pockets. With the support of its holding company, Mokoro Holdings, and shareholders, Bridge Taxi Finance has taken the bold decision to settle 50% of its clients' monthly finance installments on their behalf throughout the lockdown period. The industry has incurred heavy, heavy financial losses due to the COVID-19 pandemic. More from Vincent Raseroka, the chairman of Bridge Taxi Finance. Taxis are critical for South Africa. Without taxis, 70% of our workforce cannot get to work. 
So there is no economy without taxis. And I always put it in the same light as if you go to London or you go to the U.S. It's like the underground tubes. Without the underground tubes, there is no economy. Uh, so the taxis actually provide a public good. But the problem with COVID is that it's a mobile uh, disease. And if you look at the mode of transport that we actually use to take people from home to work, the taxis, if they are the essential part, they become a very, very critical and integral part to make sure that we avoid uh, the passing of COVID. Mm. So the taxi operators do have to actually comply to very, very strict rules in terms of moving uh, their passengers. Sure. Now, Vincent, it is indeed a bold move that you're making um, as Bridge Taxi Finance. Um, talk to us about what informed your decision uh, to make a move of this nature and, of course, how this uh, cash injection um, and the means of it will work. Yeah, what we wanted to do as a company is we would like to rise up to the challenge that the President, uh, Sir Ramaphosa, has put that corporates it's a time now for a new dawn, as everybody says it, that we all have to put, you know, nail our colors to the mast. As a company, we're going to sacrifice profits and we're going to contribute 50% towards what our customers, we've got 2,500 taxi operators that are our customers, instead of them paying, for example, 10,000 rand every month towards uh, their taxi, we'll pay 50%. And the reason we're doing that is because they actually have to load 70% instead of 100%, and they also have fewer trips to actually make. So what we don't want to do is, like everybody else in the financial markets, have been giving people uh, payment holidays. Payment holidays actually delays your debt. It increases the period that you're going to pay for your debt, and it makes it very difficult for the taxi operator to finally own their own taxis. So we would like post-COVID that our people are not in debt and that they can actually end up with an asset. Mm. Now, let's talk about um, the relief fund um, that was, of course, announced by uh, Transport Minister Figilin Balula. Um, taxi owners are not happy about what uh, they're saying is the, uh, an, an insufficient amount that government um, is, is offering them. Do you believe that uh, your initiative will go a long way in terms of bridging that particular gap? We believe short term, our approach it's going to be a signal and a guiding light to the market that we've got to do more to help the taxi operators. Um, In terms of what the minister has actually offered, I believe that it's a good step in the right direction to realize that the taxis actually provide what is a public good. uh, The taxi operators, if we all think about where taxis started, with uh, social distancing that came with apartheid, we were not allowed to live anywhere near white people. We were supposed to live 30, 60 kilometers away. And black people actually came up with their own system by their own means, lifting themselves with their own bootstraps. They've got this whole ecosystem. So the minister is aware of it. They want to help. We know that there is a shortage in terms of funding, but I think it's a good start. And uh, finally, if we look at uh, the impact that the industry is already feeling as a result of COVID-19, what are your predictions around um, what an industry post-COVID-19 looks like? Do you think that the industry will be able to bounce back? Definitely. I think the industry has got to bounce back because we do need an economy. But the real issue is we should not miss the opportunity that COVID has given us. We need to restructure the taxes. 
We need to capitalize it appropriately. We need to give support to them. And we've got to use different uh, technologies. I mean, uh, the opportunities that we have now to rewrite this whole industry are huge. I'll give you an example. At Beach Taxi Finance, when we give somebody a loan to buy a taxi, if the person is not actually loading people on the taxi, we don't charge them. And if they're not successful, we take the taxi back and we give it to someone else mm. that can actually run it. And through technology, we're able to track and trace where the taxi is. If someone is overloading, we can tell. If they're not on their license route, we can also tell. So we've got to work with everybody to make sure that this whole ecosystem of the taxi actually works. And that was Vincent Raseroka, Bridge Taxi Finance Chairman, and he was on the line to Zikonamiso. The pandemic has forced change on all our lives. For some temporarily, for others, things will never be the same. But could it be a turning point, not just for individuals, but for societies? This week, the BBC is running a series called Rethink, exploring how things could change after the pandemic. They've asked a collection of contributors to tell us not what they predict will happen, but what they want to happen. Here, Pope Francis tells of his hopes for a more contemplative society. This crisis is affecting us all, rich and poor alike, and putting a spotlight on hypocrisy. I am worried by the hypocrisy of certain political personalities who speak of facing up to the crisis, of the problem of hunger in the world, but who in the meantime manufacture weapons. This is a time to be converted from this kind of functional hypocrisy. It's a time for integrity. Either we are coherent with our beliefs or we will lose everything. Today, I believe we have to slow down our rate of production and consumption and to learn to understand and contemplate the natural world. And speaking of contemplation, I'd like to dwell on one point. This is the moment to see the poor. Jesus says we will have the poor with us, always, and that is the truth. But the poor are hidden because poverty is bashful. They are there, but we don't see them because we don't want to see them. We often treat the poor like rescued animals. We can't settle for a partial welfare policy. I'm going to dare to offer some advice. This is the time to go to the underground. I'm thinking of Dostoevsky's short novel, Notes from the Underground. The employees of that prison hospital had become so inured, they treated their poor prisoners like things and seeing the way they treated one who had just died. The one on the bed alongside tells them, enough. He too had a mother. We need to tell ourselves this often. That poor person had a mother who raised him lovingly.
but it helps to think of that love he once received through his mother's hope. We disempower the poor, and to see them, to really see them, can help us to discover the piety, the pietas, which points towards God and towards our neighbor. Go down into the underground and pass from the hypervirtual, fleshless world to the suffering flesh of the poor. This is the conversion we have to undergo. And if we don't start there, it won't happen. It won't happen. Pope Francis there speaking to the BBC. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at Netlet to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. I tried looking for a job for it's a year and a half now. The challenges were experience and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Womanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Womanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. Change Your Game is a weekly entrepreneurial program that targets entrepreneurs, especially youth, on the African continent. Last year, Google named me as one of the brightest young minds in the world. The program seeks to portray various opportunities and options that are available for entrepreneurs. I came up with the way for the world not to pass. It focuses and highlights real issues concerning entrepreneurship. There are so many people whose potential is still untapped. At Change Your Game, we believe entrepreneurs are the key drivers of tomorrow's African innovations and essential to creating a thriving African economy. Channel Africa, the African perspective. The time is now 17.50 Central African time. Here's Nosetia Zuma with your latest economics news. 
Thank you, Samora. Good evening. South Africa's Department of Public Enterprises say it has received unsolicited proposals from private sector funders and private equity investors for a new national airline that must emerge from the SAA business rescue process. Government says it will engage with the interested parties constructively in pursuit of a national development and strategic agenda. The department says it wants the partners to introduce technical, financial and operational expertise. Acting Director General at the Department of Public Enterprises, Hatazo Kakudi. The interest confirms the decision made by government to restructure SAA was the right one. This interest is despite airlines across the world facing severe financial difficulties due to COVID-19. It shows that the extending of SAA as a world-class carrier has endured. The department is intent on pursuing a credible process in evaluating the proposals. The SAA that will emerge from the business rescue will be a competitive, financially viable and operationally effective business. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa has applauded the consultative work done by the Sustainable Infrastructure Development Symposium South Africa at its early stages of implementation that will see the country's economy grow. He has appealed to Head of Infrastructure in the Presidency, Hosien Tu Ramahopa, to continue to lure potential businesses in the private sector to come and invest in infrastructure development. Ramaphosa says it will take a concerted effort by both the public and private sector, including business, to, to see an inclusive economic growth across the country. He was uh, addressing the inaugural Sustainable Infrastructure Development Symposium South Africa at the Government Union Building in Pretoria. This symposium is laying a path for South Africa after coronavirus, but also well into the future. In many ways, it represents a new beginning for infrastructure development. A new beginning that promises inclusive growth, development, transformation, and above all, hope for a better tomorrow for all our people. Meanwhile, the Minister of Public Works and Infrastructure, Patricia DeLille, says infrastructure development will be at the centre of the sixth administration in the country. She says South Africa as a developing country has an obligation to make sure it advances its efforts to have an inclusive economy, focusing on skills development and training for the youth and women. DeLille was speaking at the inaugural Sustainable Infrastructure Development Symposium South Africa. She says more consultations with all sectors in business and the private sector already underway in order to further grow the economy. There's even a greater need to partner in the investment and implementation of infrastructure that will facilitate social and economic growth in a workable and purposeful way. In South Africa, infrastructure investment together with the use of public lands and buildings is a critical lever to achieve spatial and economic justice Zimbabwean solar power company Central Grid plans to increase generation capacity to 25 megawatts by October 2021, helping the country chip away at a huge electricity deficit that has hurt mines and kept households in the dark for hours. The southern African country currently produces about 1,000 megawatts of electricity, half of the peak demand, resulting in rolling power cuts after a devastating drought reduced dam levels at its hydropower plant, while aging 
operating thermal stations break down regularly. Central Grid says it will spend 30 million US dollars raised locally and offshore to scale its plant to 25 megawatts. But Central Grid founder Victor Udezi is concerned that Zimbabwe's foreign currency shortages could dampen interest in the sector. And one in six jobs at the UK's car industry are at risk of redundancy without help from the government in restarting production. The Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders says emergency funding, permanent short-time working, business rate holidays and vet cuts are needed to stem the flow of job losses as showrooms are reopening and production lines are restarting. More than 6,000 jobs have been lost in the automotive sector in the United Kingdom this month. In a common with many manufacturers, car makers have high fixed costs to pay such as rent during a period where sales are sharply down and many workers remain fell off as companies work out how to operate while allowing for social distancing. And for your financial indicators, the US dollar is trading at 385.78 Nigerian Nara, 11.53 Buzona Bila, 105.41 Kenyan Shilling, and 18.18 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar is trading at 5.24 Brazilian Roll, 69.31 Russian Ruble, 75.67 Indian Rupee, 7.06 Chinese Yuan, and at the 17.33 South African rands. The US dollar is also trading at 80 pence to the British pound and 89 cents to the euro. Looking at commodities, gold is trading at $1,754 and platinum at $823 per ounce. And the price of brand crude oil is at $42.37 a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Nusi Lezuma. This is Africa Digest. And that wraps up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to uh, contact us on Insta- uh, on info at channelafrica.co.za. Follow us on Twitter at channelafrica1 and you can WhatsApp us on plus 27763003327. Taking us to the top of the hour is a song titled Banoi by Black Diamond. We'll see you later. <laughs> Oh, in this I'm